Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter one is where we are going to spend our time this morning. Matthew chapter one. If you look at the very first verse in Matthew chapter one, it reads the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Um, You actually know in Greek what those first opening words are. In Greek, biblios, that's book or record, Bible, biblios, Bible, book or record. Uh, Genesis, biblios, Genesis, that's the beginning, uh, going all the way back to the beginning, the the Genesis. Um, Jesus Christu, um, biblios, uh, Genesis, Jesus Christu, uh, the beginning, the book of the beginning of, of Jesus Christ. Um, But as Matthew opens to tell us, in essence, that Matthew is the Genesis of the New Testament, he's giving us kind of as the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, he's giving us the the opening of the New Testament. And as we're all excited to read the opening of the New Testament, we're all excited to read the story of Jesus, our Savior, he starts with a beloved genealogy. Um, Even the most enthusiastic reader occasionally groans when encountering a genealogical record. You come to this in your daily Bible reading. I don't know if you guys have any plans for um, a Bible reading plan through the new year. I always start mine January 1st. So excited. Genesis, Exodus. This is really awesome. Leviticus. Kind of weird, but still we're okay. Numbers. It's where everything slows down. Not one, but two genealogical records. You ask somebody, what's your favorite portion of scripture? What's your favorite story in the Bible or favorite book of the Bible? I have never once in my entire life had anybody tell me, well, my favorite passage of scripture is the genealogical record of Jesus. Never once. But what Matthew is going to do here is so important. So important. What I hope to do as I preach through this text is to show you the importance of this genealogical record. It may be boring, but it's not insignificant. Matthew's going to trace Jesus' line back to Abraham. He starts with Abraham in verse 2. Abraham is the father of Isaac. And he goes all the way back to show us, because he's writing to Jewish people. And he's writing to prove Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one that's going to come from the line of Abraham to enact the Abrahamic covenant. Part of the Abrahamic covenant is that the Messiah would come to enable Israel to be a blessing to all of the nations. And so Matthew says, let's connect this back to the Abrahamic covenant, because what I'm about to tell you is how Jesus becomes a blessing to all of the nations. In fact, Matthew bookends his entire book with those two promises. In the beginning, going back to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, the Messiah is going to come so that Israel can be a blessing to the nations. And then, you know, the end in Matthew 28, go into all of the nations, go into all of the world, preach the gospel to all of the nations, all of the people, give them the good news. Matthew doesn't just include Abraham to tie us back into the Abrahamic covenant. He also includes David. Um, Verse 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Those two people um, remind us of two amazing covenants. The Abrahamic covenant, as we said, but also the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant that the line of the Messiah would come through David's line and of his kingdom there would be no end. The king is going to come. So Matthew is is writing to get us to pay attention to Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. He's going to be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. 
Matthew is showing that God is faithful, even in, as we're going to read, even in the deportation to Babylon in verse 12. God was still faithful to his people, even though they deserved what they had received by being exiled to Babylon. Even though they had sinned and rebelled against God, God was faithful to his promise. So let's let's do something that maybe we've never done in church ever before and read a genealogy. Okay? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham is the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, uh, the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, who apparently swims upstream, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse is the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. Who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat's the father of Joram. Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh the father of Ammon. Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mitan, Mitan the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Though it might seem tedious, though it might be boring, this is still the word of God, inspired, infallible, and profitable for us this morning. So let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time. God, thank you for this genealogical record. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from this list of names that Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote for us today for a purpose. May we see that purpose this morning. We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. This genealogical record does many things. We're going to stare at four of those things that it does. But just right off the bat, this genealogical record connects us to history. Notice Matthew doesn't start his gospel by saying, once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. Um, that's, that's left to George Lucas. Um, Matthew writes, this is historical fact. This is actual history. These are actual people. I'm not writing a fairy tale. And so that's why he opens with a genealogical record. But a genealogy is not just a genealogy back in that day. It's not just telling us who uh, the, the grandparents and great-grandparents were. This is more than that. A genealogical record back in that day was a resume. It's a resume. In those times, it was your family, it was your pedigree, it was your clan, it was the people you were connected to that constituted your resume. So a genealogy was a way of saying to the world, this is who I am. Do you want to know who I am? Look at my genealogy. And there's an art to writing a resume, right? You kind of have to brag without showing that you're bragging. So, too, in their day, they're writing their resume trying to brag. We know that there's uh, historical documents that show us genealogical records where people just omitted bad people in their family tree. They just decided we're not going to include these people. 
Uh, Parts were omitted. Uh, The unflattering details were left out. We know that actually King Herod did this. King Herod the Great tinkered with his genealogical record. We have his genealogical record. And he tinkered with it to pull out all the different people that he thought would give him a bad name. So he wanted to string together just a a string of awesomeness to present to people to say, see, I'm worthy of being king because look at my family line. Look at my family history. It's almost as if Matthew decides, you know what? We know Herod the Great tinkered with his genealogical record to make it just flawless and seem like there's nobody bad in my line at all, even though we knew that there were. It's almost like Matthew decides, let's do the exact opposite. Let's just include a messed up lineage. This is a messed up lineage. If you're going to try and make a case for Jesus to be king, you wouldn't include any of these people. This is a mess. To begin with, there's five women in this list. In a patriarchal society, women were never mentioned in a genealogical record. Matthew says, no, I'm mentioning them because they're important. Um, So there's outsiders that are outsiders by their gender. There's also outsiders by being of a different ethnic group. We have Gentiles that are mentioned. We have Rahab, who's a Canaanite. So we have outsiders in this list who are outsiders by gender. We have outsiders who are outsiders by ethnicity or by culture. And then we have a lot of outsiders who are outsiders by morality. Rahab, not only a Canaanite, she's also a prostitute. King David. Now, King David, at face value, is somebody you definitely want in your lineage, right? I can trace my lineage back to the great King David, a man after God's own heart. But Matthew makes sure that we know David, not for being a man after God's own heart and a great king. Matthew makes sure that we know, oh, David was the one who committed adultery and murdered. He makes sure that we know that. So this genealogical record includes moral outsiders, includes gender outsiders, it includes ethnic outsiders. It shows us so much. But for our time this morning, just four amazing lessons that we learn from the genealogical record of Jesus. Four amazing lessons. Number one, God works in unexpected ways. God works in unexpected ways. Nobody would have written the list this way. This is completely unexpected. In fact, the king that was to come, the Messiah that was chosen by God, would have been expected to come not only with a different lineage, but also in a different fanfare to to welcome uh, the, the welcome of a crowd of people singing his praises, not as a lowly baby in a in a cattle stall. The Jews expected that their Messiah would come as a perfect king a conqueror, a mighty conqueror who would judge and end all oppression. But if that's how Jesus had come, he wouldn't have helped us. He couldn't have helped us. He had to come sharing in our humanity. If he had come just as a mighty conquering king, he would have crushed us, left us all without hope. But Jesus comes in a very unexpected way. And the reality is, according to this list, that's totally unexpected. You would not write your genealogical record this way to get us to see Jesus is the promised Messiah. But if this is the way God did it back then, is it possible that this is the way that God's working in your life today? God works in unexpected ways. He did it back then, and he's doing it now. Isn't it possible that when God does something that's unexpected in your life today, it may not mean that he's forgotten you or neglected you. In fact, it may be that he's working even harder to work out a plan for your good. 
Here's the key. Some of the greatest things that God did in the Bible happened when he deviated from the expected plan. And we think it should go this way and it goes a different way. Just think about Mary. Just think about Mary. Well, I'm, I'm betrothed, a, a more serious form of engagement, and I'm going to get married. And, and, all, and, and Jesus just, or the father shows up and says, you're going to bear Jesus, the Messiah. Totally drops a, a bomb in the entire planning and scheming of Joseph and Mary. She's not planning to be pregnant. She's planning to get married. She's planning for a wedding. And, but God says, no, I have a, a greater plan that's going to change the whole world. I have a plan that's going to change the whole world. And his plan was better by far. In the same way God pursues a plan in your life that's unexpected in many ways. But his plan is always better. It is. It's always better. So think of your life as Jesus' genealogical record. Think of your life that way, being like his genealogy. Maybe it seems like it's filled with dysfunction or, or, or bad luck or chaos. God's working in that chaos. God's working in that chaos. You may not understand it. Probably we won't. It's like what Charles Spurgeon said. Life for us is like walking in the back of a a theater and watching a three-hour-long play, but jumping in right in the middle of it and watching two minutes and walking out. You're not going to understand anything that's happening. You're going to be very confused. So, too, God has a plan that stretches beyond just what's happening in your moments in your life right now. And he works in unexpected ways. So trust him. Even as we studied in Family Bible Hour this morning with Mary, trust him, submitting gladly, rejoicing. Doesn't mean you can't question. Doesn't mean you can't doubt. You can struggle with that. Jude tells us to have grace and mercy on those who are doubting. But at the root, at the core, in your heart of hearts, you say, you know what? You work in weird, unexpected ways, and I'm going to trust those mysterious ways are for my good. The second lesson that we learn from this strange line and list of names, is that God always keeps his promises, just rarely when we would want. God always keeps his promises. He does. And this list is going to show that to us, but not usually when we want it. Rarely, if ever, does he keep his promises when we want him to keep his promises. So he works in unexpected ways, and he he works with unexpected times to fulfill his promises. It takes a long time for God to fulfill this promise of the Messiah coming from Adam and the the prophecy given in Genesis 3.15 to here. That's a long, long time, thousands and thousands of years. So we learn you cannot judge God by your calendar. You can't. God may appear to be slow, but he never forgets his promises. He will always complete his promises. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph in the Old Testament sold into slavery, praying, righteous man, wondering, God, where are you? What are you doing? Are you going to bring me out of this and bless me? I've been pursuing righteousness. I've been pursuing obedience and faith and trusting in you, and you're not acting. And he has to wait and wait and wait decades before God acts. But he promises that he will act, and he will ultimately. Think of Jairus in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, I'm going to go take care of your daughter. And then he lingers, he tarries because he's taking care of the old woman with the issue of internal bleeding. And as he's talking to her, Jairus' daughter dies. But Jesus said, I was going to take care of her. And he tells Jairus, keep on believing. Don't 
don't let this rock your faith and your trust in me. Think of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus as we've been studying. They said, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. Please come now. And they would expect him to come and help Lazarus. And Jesus stays so that Lazarus could die and he could raise him. God's grace virtually never operates on our time frame, on our schedule. And we, we usually think our schedule is pretty reasonable, right? So when God's not working on our schedule, God's unreasonable. We like to say it a lot. God's never late, right? He's never late. Amen and amen. But he's hardly ever early. He, he forces you to trust in him. He doesn't follow our agendas. He doesn't follow our schedules. But he always keeps his word. I want to highlight one person in this list. It's in verse 11. Here's the place where God kept his word in a very strange way. We see, obviously, the Messiah being born. That's God keeping his word. But here's a very interesting note to make. Circle the, the name Jeconiah, and you can draw a little line from that name Jeconiah. He's, um, Josiah is the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. Why does Matthew include Jeconiah and his brothers? What's happening here? And you can just write there in the margin, Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 30. Jeconiah is... Um, a very wicked man. He came from a, a wicked line of kings. And God the Father told Jeconiah and his dad, Jeconiah will never have kids that live to be king. And there's almost a rebuttal of, okay, fine, my kids won't, but my grandkids will. And God sets down a curse on the line of Jeconiah for his wickedness in Jeremiah 22, verse 30. That no descendant of Jeconiah will ever be king. No descendant of Jeconiah will ever be king. But we have a problem here. Because Jeconiah is from the line of David. And in order, not only David, but through Solomon. In order for a descendant of David to be king, they have to come through the line of Solomon. But Jeconiah is through that line. So you have a curse on the lineage that's going to bear the king. Is God going to keep his word? Is he going to, when Jesus shows up, is he going to say, oh, bummer, I shouldn't have made that curse. You know what? Redact the curse. Um, Forget that. My bad. Sorry, Jeconiah. Uh, I just wasn't thinking. No, he says, I'm going to make a way for that curse to work and for the Messiah still to come through Jeconiah's lineage, through Solomon, through David. And how does he do it? He does it through the process of adoption. Joseph is not Jesus's physical Father, And because he's not the physical father of Jesus, then Jesus is not from the bloodline of Jeconiah. Therefore, he bypasses the curse, the Jeconiah curse. God keeps his promises. By the way, in Luke, Matthew, what Matthew does is he traces the the lineage of Jesus back through Solomon and David to show us this is the royal line. Um, But it has to bypass the Jeconiah curse. And that's how God bypasses it through the adoption of Jesus, not physically being born of Joseph. But he had to physically be from the line of David to inherit that legality to the throne through the line of David. And that's why Luke is going to tell us uh, with Luke's lineage, um, he goes all the way back to Adam, takes Jesus's lineage all the way back to Adam. And Luke tells us that um, Mary, uh, Mary's great, 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 great grandfather is Nathan, who is the son of David. So David had multiple sons. One is Solomon and the royal line is going to go through that line. And one is Nathan. And Mary is a descendant from Nathan's line. So Jesus is blood in the bloodline of David. So he can uh, ascend to the throne as king. And he's also, if he had only been of the bloodline 
of David through Nathan, he couldn't have been king, but he had to be adopted into the legal line of the king through Solomon. And that's what Matthew shows us. So God keeps his promises. He doesn't follow our agendas. He doesn't follow our schedules, but he does keep his promises. Now, you might say, well, that's fine. I'm glad God keeps his promises to me, but I don't really keep my promises to him. I struggle with sin. I struggle in following him. I make great promises. I have great aspirations, but I never keep my promises. And that leads us to number three. God redeems what is broken. This lineage shows us clearly that God redeems what's broken. So he works in unexpected ways. He always um, keeps his promises, fulfills what he has promised, just usually not in our time frame. And he redeems what is broken. He redeems what is broken. There are a lot of winners in this list. Uh, And I say that facetiously. There are a lot of very, very crazy stories. Just start in verse 2. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All in one verse. All liars. All known in the Old Testament for lying. Um, Judah. Drop down in verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez was the father of Hezron. Why does Matthew tell us Judah was the father of two people, Perez and Zerah? Why? We don't need... We don't need Zerah. Zerah is not in this lineage. Why does Matthew do that? I think what Matthew's doing is he's trying to jog the memory of his readers. These are Old Testament lovers. Um, these, these people reading Matthew's gospel loved the Old Testament. They would have known exactly what Matthew was trying to tell them. I don't know if you remember the story of Judah with Tamar and the twins that were born, Perez and Zerah. Uh, You can write in your margin in your Bible there, Genesis 38. We don't have time to read it this morning. It makes for a very interesting family devotions when you're reading through it. Uh, Judah had three sons. One of his sons is married to Tamar. The son dies. And uh, the the law back then said that if uh, the the husband dies but has brothers, the brother is supposed to marry that wife, take care of her, take care of his sister-in-law as his own wife and provide uh, kids for her to carry on uh, the family line and to populate the earth. That's why the law was made. It's not in effect today. That was the law back in the Old Testament, the beginning of the Old Testament. So Tamar marries one of Judah's three sons, and he dies. And so uh, the second son of Judah, his name is Onan. Onan refuses to obey God in marrying Tamar and providing uh, her with a son. And so God kills Onan. Don't obey God, you die. So God kills Onan. So Judah says, I don't really want to give my third son to Tamar because my two sons who were with Tamar uh, both died. Something's wrong with Tamar. I don't want my uh, last son dying. So Judah refuses. So Tamar comes up with a very debauched way of getting pregnant through the lineage of Judah's line. Judah's son is supposed to marry her and provide a son for her. And instead, Tamar dresses up like a prostitute. Uh, Judah goes to buy a prostitute. So why is Judah doing that to begin with? Um, Goes to buy a prostitute, doesn't know that he is paying for his daughter-in-law, ends up getting her pregnant with these twins. Um, Very, very interesting end to that story. But this is a mess. This is a mess. And God says, yeah, my Messiah is coming through that. Grace is going to come through that mess. Grace is going to come through that mess. Um, Verse 5, Rahab is a prostitute. Verse 5, Ruth. Sam was the father of Boaz. Boaz by Rahab. Boaz 
was the father of Obed by Ruth. You remember, Ruth is a Moabitess. She's a Moabite woman. You've got to go all the way back to the beginning of the Moabites. Do you remember how they began? It's another great story. Good one for family devotions with your kids. Genesis chapter 19. After Lot flees with his daughters from Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember his wife is turned into a pillar of salt. They flee to a little tiny town called Zorah. And in Zorah, um, his daughters say, there's nobody here to marry us, to get us pregnant, and to carry on the lineage. Uh, so they come up with uh, a terrible idea. Um, in my Bible, the, the title of the section is Lot is Debased. That's a very fitting title. Um, they get... They conspired together, by the way. Both girls say, we've got a plan. And neither one of them says, what? Don't do that. Um, They make a lot of wine. They get their dad drunk. And in consecutive nights, they sleep with their father. They get pregnant. um, And one delivers a son. And she calls him Moab. And one delivers a son called Ben-Ami, which is where we get the uh, the Amorites or the Ammonites from. So the Ammonite people and the Moabite people came from Genesis 19 through a debased, sinful, wretched form. Not only like Genesis 38 with Judah, but now here we've got two incestuous relationships. I'll drop down to verse six. David, obviously you know David. Um, Matthew tries very clearly here to tell us what you need to know about David. Middle of verse 6. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Um, You know that David had taken Bathsheba, committed adultery, and then had Uriah killed. The point is, there's more stories here, but those are probably the most familiar. The point is that you and I may have some serious skeletons in our family closets, However, we'd be hard-pressed to rival the lineage of Jesus. We'd be hard-pressed to rival the debauchery, the evil, the wickedness. And when Jesus is born, in essence what he is saying is, I have come to redeem everything that's happened. You might be living in ashes right now, and Jesus says, I've come to bring beauty out of those ashes. Even in your sin, even in your darkness, Jesus comes to give light. That's why we sing the songs we, we sang. In thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. We're in darkness. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in him. He comes to conquer and to redeem what is broken. So he works in unexpected ways. He doesn't work in our time frame, but he always keeps his promises. He redeems what is broken. And finally, number four, God gives rest to the weary. Again, there are so many more lessons, but we just don't have time to look at all of them. But here's a very interesting one. God gives rest to the weary. Look at what Matthew does. Verse 17. All the generations from Adam to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. This is a very unusually tidy genealogy. Now, we know that there were more people in this genealogy that Matthew cut out. Again, not because they had any bad things in their lineage, because he included some really uh, great stories here. Um, It's because he wants to make a point about the Messiah. So these are three groups of 14, or if you split them differently, it's six sets of seven, with Jesus being the seventh seven. 
Now, you know in the Bible, the number seven is highly significant. It starts with creation. On the week of creation, seven days, and on the seventh day, what did God do? He rested. He stopped creating everything that he was making. He didn't have to sleep. He wasn't tired. He just ceased striving, ceased working. In the Mosaic law, every seven years, the farmer was to leave the land alone. Let it replenish itself. Don't plow. Don't plant. Don't reap. Leave it alone every seven years. Let it rest. In Leviticus 25, the last year of the seventh period of seven years. So the 49th year was a year of jubilee. In that year, slaves were freed. All debts were forgiven. All the land, all the people were to rest from their weariness and from their burden. So what Matthew is telling us in a very tidy way He's giving us a genealogical record with the seventh seven being Jesus. What's Matthew trying to tell us? Again, to a Jewish reader, they know that seven is a very, very important number, and they know everything that I just said about that number. And so they know what this is pointing to. Jesus is our rest. He's the Messiah. He's come to give us rest, and only in him can rest truly be found. He would say that later in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Let me take your burden. Let me take the burden of sin so all of your guilt and shame is removed. And more than that, let me take the burden of working. You don't have to work to earn God's favor. I'll do that work for you. You just trust in me. I will live in such a way that I love the Father perfectly, and then I'll give you that perfect love. I'll give you that perfect record of righteousness. This is the news of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. That's why we sing, by thine all sufficient merit. You do all the work. Jesus paid it all. He does all the work. And Matthew is trying to foreshadow that here in this genealogy. So as we conclude, just two points in conclusion. What do we learn from this? Number one, we learn the value of all of scripture. We learn from this list of names that all of scripture is valuable. So like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, if if someone were reading this passage and, and you ask them, do you understand what you're reading? And they said, I have no idea what I'm reading. Would you be able now to say, I used to not have any idea what I was reading either, but I have some keys that can unlock that to show you the truth of the gospel. To show you the truth of the gospel. The value of all of scripture. And number two, In conclusion, we see the glory in all that Jesus is for us at Christmas. We see the glory. He has come. Christmas enables us to see God working in unexpected ways. God always keeping his promises, rarely when we want him to. God redeeming what is broken. God giving rest to the weary. That's all found at Christmas. He did this by stepping into our world, living life with us. In 1961, the Russians put the first man into space. And uh, Khrushchev said that when that cosmonaut got up into outer space, he did not see God, and therefore God must not exist. C.S. Lewis wrote a response to that statement. It's an article called The Seeing Eye. And Lewis said that if there is a God who created us, we would not discover him by going up in the air. He said God wouldn't relate to us as a man on the second floor would relate to somebody on the first floor. God's not just got to go up a little bit higher and we see him. God doesn't relate to us that way. No, C.S. Lewis says God relates to us like Shakespeare relates to Hamlet. 
Shakespeare authored Hamlet. Shakespeare owns Hamlet. Shakespeare wrote Hamlet into existence. So Hamlet doesn't get to know Shakespeare um, by just going up higher in the story somehow. Hamlet only knows Shakespeare if Shakespeare will reveal himself by writing himself into that story. That's exactly what Christmas is all about. God didn't merely write information or give us information about himself. He did that through the scriptures, but he did so much more than that. He wrote himself into the story. The author of the story wrote himself into the story, lived among his creations. And his creations, as you know, beat him, mocked him, spit on him, killed him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. This is reason to rejoice. Emmanuel, God with us. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel has come. By his all-sufficient merit, he raises us to heaven. We can rest. And that is a reason to come and to behold him. Come and behold him, born the king, adoring Christ the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is so clear, even in a list that seems so uh, boring at times. God, we just confess in our flesh. We just look at that list and glance over it. God, I pray that we would have seen this morning the glory of Jesus in a list of names. God, he's in every single passage. There's glory that points us to the Father, that points us to the Spirit, and points us to the Son. And God, we love the Trinity. We love the Father making the plan to write God into the story that you yourself wrote. Thank you so much for Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the author of the story with us. And we long to celebrate him now. We love him only because he first loved us and gave himself for us. We pray it in the name of our matchless Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.